So here we go, reading Ephesians 2, chapter 1 to 10. And in the NIV, it's entitled, Made Alive in Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in, in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have, been, you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance for us to do. Let's just pray as we come to uh, hand over to Rob to uh, explain the reading and, the, and your word and God's word to us. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you uh, um, for the work that Rob's put in this week to to explain that to us. I just pray uh, that Rob's words uh, will be your words, Lord, and that we can we can hear you speaking to us directly through through what's said in the next few minutes. Help us to concentrate, Lord. Help us to. Uh, um, put aside the things of this world just for just for a few minutes while we we listen to you speaking to us directly in your loving name lord amen thank you thank you bill and uh i'm going to just uh put some slides up while we do this if i can we are looking today at the doctrine of salvation that passage was all about salvation and you're probably wondering why now well you know that through the, through the last couple of years, the pastor and I have been preaching on some of the aspects of our statement of faith. We started by looking at God. That's called theology proper. We looked at who God is and what God does. And then much later, we looked at the Bible. It's called bibliology. We looked at the word of God and what that means to us. Then we looked at, at man, at, at mankind, and what the Bible says about humankind. And that's called anthropology. And most recently, we looked at the person of Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, Christology. Now we come to the doctrine of salvation. Salvation, it's called soteriology in, in the theology textbooks. And this morning, I'd like to look particularly, because we, have, we were able to have a second session on this a little bit later in the year. I'd like to look particularly at what are we saved from? But first of all, let's look and see what the doctrine of salvation is according to our statement of faith. It's entirely a work of God's grace. We saw that in the passage just read and cannot be earned or deserved. It's been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ and is offered to all in the gospel. God in his love forgives sinners whom he calls and he grants repentance and faith. All who believe in Christ are justified by faith alone adopted into the family of God and receive eternal life. That's a wonderful, wonderful definition of faith. But why is salvation, sorry, a definition of salvation. Why is salvation though so terribly necessary? Well, to do that, we've got to look back at a previous 
uh, doctrine, sorry, I've spelled that wrong, I just noticed it now, the doctrine of man, the human race, all men and women being created in the image of God, have this inherent and equal dignity and worth, and that's the good bit. Our greatest purpose is to obey and worship God, that's all good. But the reason we need salvation is what comes next, the fall, as a result of the fall of our first parents, the sin of Adam and Eve, Every aspect of human nature has been corrupted and all men and women are without spiritual life, guilty sinners and hostile to God. And we talked about this when we looked at that particular piece. Every person is therefore under the just condemnation of God and needs to be born again, forgiven and reconciled to God in order to know and please him. And I could say amen there and we could just go home. But I think we need to explain a little bit more than that, because there's a lot of confusion about salvation. I saw a, a, a big poster outside a church some time back, and on the poster it said, Jesus saves. And someone had taken a, a pen and said, not on my salary, he doesn't. So salvation is a confusing thing. What does it mean? Well, salvation comes from the Greek word soter, which means to deliver or to redeem. And salvation is always in the Bible, deliverance from something that is pretty threatening. It's never deliverance from something immaterial or peripheral. It's deliverance from something that is dangerous or desperate or, or deadly. The question is, what are we saved from? What are we primarily not saved from? What is the fundamental reason that Jesus came to save us? Now, if you listen to some folk in certain churches today, quite frankly, unbelief or uh, being outside of God doesn't sound all that serious at all. You get the idea that humanity mainly needs to be rescued from its, let's call it its lack of fulfillment. So what we really need is a savior to help us because our marriage hasn't worked out according to plan or our children are not turning out to be tomorrow's Copernicus or Einstein or our dream career has turned out to be a dead end, or we don't enjoy the health and fitness that we would like, or we look at all the travel brochures and we want to have this wonderful holiday in the Far East and we end up having a three-day trip to see the in-laws. Life just hasn't worked out and therefore we need salvation from that. Life doesn't deliver, we need to be delivered. According to the gospel that you hear sometimes, Jesus will take care of all that. Jesus died on the cross to fix your marriage, to help you raise confident kids brimming with, uh, with self-esteem. Jesus will help you climb that corporate ladder or, or breathe new life into your business. And the only danger for which you need salvation is the shattering of your dreams. Everything you've longed for has turned out to be a nightmare, and that's the way it's going to end. But don't worry, Jesus will take care of all that. He'll rescue you from your unfulfilled life. I've also heard people presenting the gospel as if the, it's a great hope of salvation from all of the debilitating habits that we have. They say that Jesus has come, you know, he died on the cross to enable you to get control of your life. He's the stepladder. He's the boost you need to, to get out of the hole that you've fallen into. This kind of salvation is very, very attractive to a society like ours that is overcome by lust and passion. Many people are enslaved by sinful habits, over-drinking, over-eating, over-smoking, pornography, whatever it might be, angry outbursts and uncontrolled tempers, 
destroying homes and, and relationships, sexual sin, homosexual and heterosexual, plaguing the world. But don't worry, Jesus will come along and he'll fix all that. He'll pluck you out of the flood of dissipation by saving you from your drives and your desires so that you don't destroy your life. Now he may, he can, he often will. That's not what the Bible means by salvation. Will Jesus deliver you from an unfulfilled life, from enslavement and these bad habits? Absolutely he can, but that needs to be qualified. There is a secondary sense in which the gospel does apply to these things. When you are genuinely converted, when you genuinely know Jesus, you belong to God. And the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. You do have a new reason to live. But more importantly, you have the hope of eternal life and the promise of heaven. That has a dramatic effect on the lack of fulfillment we have in life. And when you experience the power of the Holy Spirit to change you, you see the victory over these debilitating habits and passions that our sinful natures generate. Issues of fulfillment and sinful passions will be dealt with in the Lord's time, in the Lord's way. So it seems, in a sense, if one comes to Christ primarily to find fulfillment or to escape from bad habits, Jesus may not be what you're looking for. Let me explain. Tim Keller, the great uh, American pastor and writer, and I ask you to pray for Tim Keller, those who know of his work and know of him. He's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and he's very, very ill. And we don't, he possibly has as little as a year to live. We need to pray for, for Tim and his wife, Kathy. Tim Keller addressing a movement known today as the seeker sensitive movement. In other words, there's this movement in certain churches to make your church sensitive to what people are seeking. It's a, it's a strange term because the Bible says there is nobody who seeks after God. There's not a massive horde of people out there desperately seeking God. That's not what the Bible says. But Tim Keller says this, and I think very wisely. He says, if you want to build your church, if you want to have a church that really grows and grows and grows, what you do is you go all around the neighborhood and you, you, you send a survey out to all the homes in the area. And you ask them, what do you want from this church? What do you want from your church? Tim Keller says, then you go and you do the exact opposite. That's how you grow your church. You see, the world says this, we want self-esteem. That's what we want. We want to be saved from ourselves. But the Bible says we need to be poor in spirit. The world says, we want joy, we want happiness. The Bible says, blessed are those who mourn. The Bible says, give us health and contentment. The Bible says, as we've heard on that video earlier, you may have to be persecuted. The Bible says, give us wealth, fix our finances. The Bible said it's impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. The Bible says, or the world says, give us pleasure. The Bible says you need to be pure in heart. The Bible says, or the, or the world says, make us assertive. We want to assert ourselves. The Bible says, blessed are the meek. Joel Osteen, the so-called pastor of the biggest church in the world, and I use the word church in inverted commas, wrote the best-selling book that's 
Christian book, so-called Christian book for the last over the last 10 years, hundreds and hundreds of millions of copies. Do you know what it's called? Your best life now. How can a Christian write a book called Your Best Life Now? Surely we as believers know that we can have wonderful lives now, that God can do wonderful things. He can give us life and life and abundant, but our best life is always going to be the next one when we meet Christ in heaven. Now the world, the Bible says very clearly, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that the picture of the church in the world is quite different from this mad rush of people all desperate to, to, to come to church. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to salvation. And there are few, there are few who find it. In a similar passage in Luke, in chapter 13, verse 24, Luke says, or Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but not able to. Strive to enter. Now, he's not, this is not about works salvation. You have to strive in order to earn your salvation. But once you enter that door, it's about striving to go through and to go on and to reach. The Bible talks about the struggle very often of the Christian life. Paul talks about fighting. He talks about running. He talks about working out our salvation to the Philippian church, working out our salvation in fear and in trembling. Brian Houston has written a book called Maximize Your Life. It's the same mistake, you see, same mistake. Because what does Luke, what does Christ say in Luke chapter nine? He says all, and this is Jesus speaking. He said to them, if anyone wants to come to me, in other words, if you want to be saved, if you want to be saved, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, will lose it but whoever loses his life because of me he will save it i wish brian houston had called his book how to lose your life and written it in an entirely different way i had a conversation not long ago with a couple who are no longer members of our church but were and they were having a bit of a pop and saying you know why isn't your church growing more quickly I think they were saying, look at some of the churches in the area. They seem to be growing more quickly than your church. You know, those churches with the trendy names and all that kind of stuff. My answer to them was, our church is growing as I believe an evangelical church ought to grow. One family at a time, one soul at a time, one person at a time. And that's, that's God's pattern. A lot of these fast-growing churches are not growing because there's hordes of unsaved coming. What's happening is Christians are leaving churches like ours and going to them because they say, oh, you know, your church, our church is so dull. We don't, we don't dance around. We don't do all this fluffy stuff. So let's go to a church that seems much more lively. How sad that is. You see, the Bible says the gospel is not an attractive thing. When you preach the gospel, when you preach salvation, as we do in this church, we have a pastor who preaches salvation Sunday after Sunday. The reaction to the gospel, the Bible says, Paul says, 1 Corinthians, is foolishness. He says in Romans, it's offensive. It's offensive. The word, the word there is, is, is it's, it's hated. Uh, we need to understand why 
Christ came to save. He came to save, he came to save us from so much that should make us rejoice, but he did not necessarily came, come to save us from a life that is going to be wonderful from day one. Ask the apostles, ask the apostles if they had a life that was free from ill health and free from financial difficulty. Not one of them made any money in their lives, not one. And every single one of them except one suffered an awful death, an awful, awful death. But what does salvation then mean? If salvation can't guarantee us a wonderful life of everything going well all the time, where we're always healthy and we're always wealthy, what, what does it save us from? What does it save us from? And I'd like to suggest very briefly to finish off that salvation means we are saved from five things. What are we saved from? First of all, we're saved from condemnation. I've been watching a court case on CNN. Have you been watching it, any of you, this court case that's happening in America with this policeman who knelt on the neck of somebody? It's quite interesting to watch, and, uh, um, although sad. But I've, I've read of court cases and I've seen some, and I can imagine what it must be like if you're accused of something and you, you know you're innocent. And you have to sit through this court case. I've not been there. Please believe me. I've never been in that situation. But I can imagine what it must be like if you're sitting there and you're being accused of something and the court case goes on and you, it's, you, you know, the, the, the prosecution are very powerful in their arguments and you're wondering, am I going to be found innocent or not? And you're worried about it. And at the end of that court case, the jury come back and they say, not guilty. How wonderful that must feel. But how wonderful must it feel if you know you're guilty and you're still pronounced not guilty? You know you're not innocent. And yet in the great court of God, one day in all of our guilt, he says, you're not guilty. We're going to hear that. We've already, in fact, heard it. If you belong to Jesus Christ today, you've been saved from condemnation. God will judge all humanity one day. I'm reading from Romans 2. Because, because of your hard and impenitent heart, God says you are, Paul says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's coming a day when, we, when there's going to be condemnation for those who have avoided God's salvation. We all know John 3.16 by heart. That God loved the world so much that he gave his son that we might, those who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. But John 16 is followed by verse 17 and 18. And verse 18 particularly says this. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So when we are saved, we are saved from this awful condemnation, that pronouncement of guilty when there's no opportunity to appeal. There's no chance to say, oh, but I didn't mean it. There's no chance. To, there's no second chance. We're saved from that condemnation. That's a wonderful thing. The book of Romans chapter 8, I know for many, is your very favorite chapter in the Bible. 
that it crescendos into that wonderful piece at the end where we discover this wonderful victory. But it starts in such a beautiful way. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're never innocent, never innocent. But for eternity, you and I who know Jesus are not guilty. We're saved from condemnation. Secondly, we're saved from an eternity in hell. What is the single most disbelieved, the single most denied fact in all the universe? I submit to you, it is the existence of hell. Hardly anyone believes in the world today in the existence of hell. Even many churches. Hell has been written out of the curriculum, certainly over the last 50 to 100 years. 100 years ago, people believed in hell. Not anymore. And for those who continue their rejection of Jesus Christ, the Bible says these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Bible tells us that the essence of hell is complete separation of oneself from the very presence of God. And we're saved from that. Matthew 8 and verse 12, where, where Jesus is talking about hell, says that hell is about being cast into outer darkness. In this place, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I read recently that this wailing and gnashing of teeth that happens in hell is not people crying out in pain. It's not people crying out in repentance. It's not people crying out to God saying, oh, please, get us out of here. These are wails and the gnashing of teeth is a sign of anger and rage. Men and women who have gone to hell are there today and they're gnashing their teeth at God saying, how dare you send us here? How dare you? We can't even comprehend what life would be without the presence of God because we have the presence of God in our world, the presence of the Holy Spirit keeping life reasonable. He's here all the time, but that day will come that day will come when those who don't know Jesus are going to be separated from him forever. Jonathan Edwards, the great American intellect and the great American pastor and theologian, said this, and he's renowned for saying it. His most common prayer was, and Christian, listen to this. The most common prayer of Jonathan Edwards is this, Lord, give me a vision of hell, not heaven hell. Why? So that I may be absolutely sure that as a believer who's not going there, I will warn everybody of the dangers of hell. Thirdly, we're saved from the power of sin. God sent Jesus to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. You see, we as human beings have this selfish streak that manifests itself in what we call sin. Sin separates us from our creator. In Romans 6, Paul writes, we know that our own self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, sin loses its power over us, even though it may not feel like that. 
The Bible says that when we come to Christ, sin loses its dominion over us. I've used this illustration before, but I'll mention it again. In 1865, at the end of the American Civil War, Lincoln pronounced an emancipation of the slaves. Slaves were legally set free from that point onwards with the victory of the North and the unification of the states. There were no more slaves. Slavery was gone in America. But for several generations, people who had been slaves continued in America to live like slaves. Not because they were forced to, but because they didn't know any other way. They still related, related to, their, to, their, to their masters as if they were masters and we were still slaves. That's how they still reacted. They still lived as slaves, even though they were not slaves. And that's what happens sometimes, I think. We as Christians, as those who are believers, have been saved. We've been emancipated. We've been set free legally and judicially and positionally and yet experientially. We still find ourselves giving in to sin on a day-to-day -day basis. If only we knew, if only we knew in our heart of hearts that we've been freed from that, that dominion. And I say to you, as I look into my own heart, over the course of your Christian life, five, ten years, ten months for some maybe, twenty years, thirty years, forty years, are you seeing the signs of sin slowly? fading away? Are you gaining gradual victory in your life over the power of sin? Is bad language becoming a thing of the past? Impure thoughts increasingly becoming a thing of the past? Destructive habits one by one giving way? And those sins of omission, those poor devotional habits that I had when I first became a Christian, are they getting better and better or am I still not studying and reading the Bible as I ought? Am I still not sharing my faith as I know I ought? We're not preaching perfection. None of us reaches perfection in this life, although some say that you can. I don't believe that for a moment. But we ought to preach progress. The Christian life is the gradual ability through the Holy Spirit to get away from under the dominion of sin. That's why we've been saved so that sin can no longer have that power over us. We're also saved from the influence of Satan. Don't want to spend too much time on this, but the Bible says, first Peter is writing and he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Paul says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We are saved from the influence of Satan in our lives. We need to know that. We do need to know that. We don't need to bow the knee to Satan at all. He has been bound. We don't need to bind him. He's been bound already. We need to know that we've been saved from his influence. And finally, and I'm not about to contradict myself in any way whatsoever, I believe we can be saved, and we are saved, from the anxieties of life. Every day, life contains stresses and strains and trials in some form or another. Issues with finances, careers, relationships, timetables, 
and hosts of other responsibilities that can put pressure on us. And when we enter into a relationship with Christ, he becomes to us a source, a massive resource of, of an ability to free ourselves from that anxiety. He says, and once again, in the Sermon on the Mount, which I, I think we should read to ourselves at least once or twice a year, he says, you can't add an inch to your height. You can't add an hour to your life or a minute to your life. So why do you worry about it? There's a Christian saying that says, you know, why worry when you can pray? And yet I know some Christians who, who seem to turn that around and say, well, why pray when you can worry? Worry is so much more fun. Oh, I tell you, I, I've learned this and it's been a hard lesson over many, many years. Just to be able to relax and say God's got it in control. Denise and I can tell you a number of instances, many, 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 where we've come to the end almost and God has just stepped in and done it for us again and again and again. We can be freed from this anxiety. Paul calls it contentment. In whatever, whatever situation I find myself, he says, I've learned to be content. And this has been a trying year. This has been a trying year for our contentment. And it's ramped up our anxieties. But my news to you today, Christian, is you can be released from that anxiety. Seek first, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else that you're anxious about can be added to you. We speak of the power of salvation and being saved. And what we're talking about is the fact that God has saved us as Christians from condemnation, from eternity in hell, from the power of sin, from the influence of Satan, and from the anxieties of life. And Jesus did this on the cross. And next time we talk about salvation, we'll talk about how the salvation was actually purchased for us and what it actually means. And Jesus is the one who goes to the cross for us. And he's, Jesus is not a victim of human injustice, although in a way he is, of course. Jesus, the very instrument of God's divine justice. God pours all of the condemnation, all of our deserved hell, all of our sin, all of our anxieties. He pours them into that broken body on the cross. And he says, here it is. Here is your salvation. And when we look again at the, at the passage that we, we looked at earlier, sorry, I've just uh, gone back one. I just want to put that passage on that we had. Uh, sorry, let me just go again. It's me being silly here. Here's that passage that Bill, uh, Bill read earlier. I just want to read it slowly as I finish. Because I want us to listen to what God's word is saying to us. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to this worldly age, according to the rule of the atmospheric domain, that's Satan, spirit now working and disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. This is you and I before we're Christians and uh, inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And by nature, we were children under wrath, as others were also. And then the next words in my version, and this is the uh, North American, the, the New American Standard Bible. But 
God. Those of you who want to do some Bible study, why don't you look up the word but in your concordance and do a Bible study and whenever the word but appears, but God who is abundant in mercy because of his great love he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. Isn't this wonderful? And down to verse eight, by grace, you have been saved. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And even that is not of yourselves. He was broken for our brokenness. He was scourged for our crimes. He was murdered for our rebellion. And the songwriter says, as he hung on that cross, you see, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. And that leaves us then with the ultimate question, the question that our pastor asked last Sunday at the end of his sermon. Am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved from all these things? This morning as I sit and listen to this sermon, this, this service, am I saved? And there are only three answers to that. And the first answer is, yes, I am saved. And I know, know I am. Hallelujah. I'm saved and I know I'm saved. Hallelujah. My encouragement to you is don't keep silent about it. As Nick was saying a little bit earlier, let's spread that seed. If you know you've been saved from hell, how can you be quiet? The second answer to the question, am I saved, may be this. I'm not sure if I'm saved or not. I think I am, but I'm not quite certain. What should I do? Well, if you're not quite certain whether you're saved or not, then I suggest you, you call your pastor. Call me, if you like, one of the elders, your home group leader. Somebody who can show you that you can be sure of your salvation. I wouldn't want you to go through another day of your Christian life doubting your salvation. The third answer could be, no, I'm not saved and I know it. What must I do to be saved? And if that's your answer this morning, then once again, and I'm going to put the pastor on the spot here, but call him, please. <laughs> call him right away as soon as, as soon as the service is over or call one of our elders or somebody who you know as a, as a Christian can help you because it is quite likely, quite possible, quite, quite possible that you could pray today and be saved and know Jesus. As we sing this final hymn together, let's sing those words as Christians who know what has happened to us. And if you're not a believer, look at those words and make that decision today that God would save you from all of the things that we've talked about. Shall we pray? Father, we pray this morning that you would save those who need to be saved, if there are any in our midst this morning, that you would speak to their hearts right now, right now, and convince them of the need to come to Jesus. Those of us who know you, Lord, we say, hallelujah. Thank you for all you have saved us from. We rejoice as we sing together this hymn.